This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity mate, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. I think one of the real privileges of getting to do this show for the last few years is meeting some pretty incredible investors Mm -hmm. and some pretty incredible funds. And I think we can safely say we've developed a bit of a man crush on uh, the guys at TDM Growth Partners. We've interviewed Ed Cowan, Tom yep. Cowan, Hamish Collette, and now we've got the uh, the, the big four. <laughs> we've got uh, uh, Ben Giz joining us today. Yes. Morning, guys. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. So Ben uh, joined TDM Growth Partners when they had seventy million under management, and along with Hamish Collett and Tom Cowan, has grown TDM's assets under management to over one point five billion dollars. Ben is a non-executive director at Pacific Smiles, which is one of TDM's portfolio companies. But Ben, we were going to call you co-founder of TDM, and I think for the first time ever on this podcast, someone has said they don't want that as a title. <laughs> what is the story? Yes, a lot of people do refer to me as the co-founder, but often like to use the opportunity to tell a bit of a story about the history. Um, founders have a very special spot in most businesses, and for us, the the, uh, the take on that was that think about a business being formed on someone's living room floor, surrounded in annual reports, waist deep, probably reading the, a lot of them in either your board shorts or your undies, whatever you like, um, and really doing that sort of hard grunt work in the early days. Tom and Hamish gave me a tap on the shoulder a uh, short time later. Um, a lot of hard work had been done by that phase. We got to 70 million of funds and it's been a massive um, and very enjoyable journey since. I mean, still you've taken it from 70 to 1.5. So you've been part of the journey for a very long time. Yeah. And the power of the teams, the thing that's always really driven our success and the combination of people and not just the three of us, but the quality of pe- person we've been able to hire since and allow them to buy into the dream as well. Mm. So, Ben, now for the rest of this interview, I'm just going to be imagining Tom Cowan uh, in his undies surrounded by annual reports. So, thanks for that mental image. (laughs) But, um, 
Look, we, we do like to start these interviews by hearing about people's first investments. We find there's generally a good story or some good lessons that um, come out of that, that investment. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Sure, I'd love to. And it's a bit of an odd one. You know, I think um, for most people, they'll probably talk about the first stock they bought for me, I grew up in the country and it wasn't a proper farm, so no offence to all the real farmers out there, <laughs> but I did uh, grow up in a small property and my first investment was a flock of merino sheep. So I'd always been interested in this price value difference and what you could buy and sell at, at a differential to make a return. And I looked at ostriches and I looked at alpacas <laughs> and eventually my parents thought, you know, in order to get this guy to give up, we've just got to support him to buy a few sheep. And so that was, um, that was the first investment I made. Uh, and in amongst other things, you know, I'd look at a bunch of specky stocks and pretend I owned them and things. But the first real money I put to work was in sheep. <laughs> nice. nice. I'm pretty sure Roger Montgomery's was a goat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Weird. I, I did want a goat. I just, once again, I just wasn't allowed to get one. <laughs> so how did the investment turn out? It, it went all right, actually. Now, I don't know whether this is one of these situations where your parents secretly underwrite an outcome to make sure you don't lose interest <laughs> in investing. But certainly from my perspective, um, it, it was a good investment. And... Uh, and I haven't invested in in a flock of sheep since. However, recently I've, I've bought fifteen uh, cows. So maybe oh, this nice. is the time to revisit that that trend. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Ben, in your time at uh, TDM, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? Yes, I have. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I think everyone's personal investing philosophy some way relates to their personality traits. Uh, one of my personality traits is I'm a bargain hunter. I have been spotted from time to time rummaging around in the $2 bin at the reject shop, for example. So I love a bargain. Uh, even back at school, I was creating a secondhand market for, for school uniforms. So you can tell I like to hunt a bargain. I get excited by that. But over time, my style's transitioned a bit. TDM style is more great companies at a reasonable price. And I think that's the right way to invest. In terms of other factors. Simplicity is something I value a lot. So this ability to take a complex investment and summarise it on a page, I think is something that's really, really important. Some people refer to that as the grandma test. I think that's very offensive to grandmas. I think <laughs> how I consider it is is more a layperson's test. You should be able to explain an idea on the page, not just your grandma, but anyone and, uh, and really articulate it in a simple way. And if that can't be done, I'd question whether it's a good investment and the final thing is, just from a temperament point of view, I, I feel I operate better when times are tough and people are panicking and, you know, you have to make harder decisions when there's a lot of red on the screen. And I think that's a temperament aspect. And um, I feel like I, I like to play under that sort of situation more than a bull market. Mm. So that, that temperament piece is a really interesting one. And I think something that a lot of our listeners probably haven't experienced, um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of listeners and broad, more broadly in Australia, a lot of people have started investing after the COVID drop. Is that temperament something that you can build or what advice would you have for retail investors who haven't lived through a period where there's a lot of red on the screen? I think you can build it. Um, to have the right temperament at the right time, I think you do need to have a view of what happens after whatever blip you're going through. So if you don't have a solid view of a company in the first place, it is easy to panic. But assuming you do have a solid view of a company, you've just got to take your mind out of the short term into the long term. And your view has to be, I'm down on paper 50%, which might be a lot of money to you personally. But do I have confidence this company is going to make it through and is going to um, realise its value over time. 
And if the answer to that's yes, then you just really focus from the short term to long term. It's human nature to gravitate to the short term when you're in a panic. Mm. So we recently came across uh, a blog post that TDM uh, wrote on current market conditions, which was pretty fascinating for us because you guys aren't really known for uh, often commentating on market conditions. You take that very long-term approach and try and remove yourself from the noise. So when we did see it, uh, we thought it was worth unpacking, which is what we want to start with. In fact, you've only commented, I think, four times in the last 16 years uh, on market conditions. So what is it about the current environment that has caused for uh, you guys to give some public opinion? Yeah, the, the way we think about it is we don't think anyone's an expert to say the all or is S&P, what, um, 200 is going to end up at, you know, X amount in, in a year's time and the return will be Y. You know, we just don't think that's realistic. We view the world as bottom-up investors um, so we're constantly looking to find stocks bottom up. Occasionally, we detect that the market environment is at an extreme point. So in the middle of the GFC, I would say there was an extreme point. And, you know, after a very, very long bull market, now we feel as though it's at quite an extreme point. But most of the time, it's in the middle. So where we have an opinion, it tends to be on either end of the spectrum when things are really dire and when things feel quite optimistic to us. So this is not some mathematical equation. This is us linking together, you know, a number of indicators, if you like, financial and non-financial, to get a feel for where the uh, market is at generally. So, Ben, in this blog post, uh, you spoke about how the market's overheated. What are some of the key market indicators or just more, I guess, societal indicators that that point to the market being overheated? Yeah, that's a great question, something that we have thought a lot about recently. First thing I want to say is that you've got to think about different markets differently. And a lot of our comments around the market being overheated do relate more to the growth part of the market because that's the part that's really been supercharged. And within that, we talked a lot about the software space, which is an area we've invested a lot in. Some of the indicators we referred to in a blog post include IPOs, particularly tech IPOs, doubling day one or week one. You know, that's a routine thing that's happening. That's just not normal. Trading volumes, um, both equities and options, are up 50 to 100% year on year. Margin lending is the highest level it's been since 2008. And equity inflows are off the charts, you know, at a time also when valuations are high. So they're the metric-based indicators, and not just that one or two are something to worry about, but where all these things start happening, it's kind of like the canary chirping in the coal mine. Uh, the other bit is what I call the anecdotal test, which is that if you hear every taxi driver, uh, shopkeeper, friend, whoever you speak to in the street um, who previously had relatively little knowledge on investing, talking about how much money they've made and how hard it is to lose money, then generally you've got a problem. Mm, mm. You never like to hear the words highest since 2008 or highest since 2000. That's always a, that's always a red flag. And, you know, yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing it in... Uh, you know, everything from NFTs to the amount of stupid cryptocurrencies that are being made to Pokemon cards and baseball cards trading at all-time highs. There's so much money in the system and it's just desperate to find places to go. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, markets are overvalued, are hot, uh, whatever you want to say. Um, but as you said, you're a bottom-up investor. So, I guess in the simplest way to ask this question is why does that matter? Yeah, it's a great question. Something that, you know, both a lot of clients ask us and 
and we debate a lot internally as well. So you're, you're very right. We are bottom-up investors. So what that means is that we're looking at individual stocks and trying to form a view on whether they can deliver our returns, you know, which we're trying to target 20% plus per annum, 25% plus per annum. So that's always a true north. The reason it matters for us, the market environment, is that it goes to the opportunity set. So if we're at one end of the extreme or the other, like I've mentioned, either super optimistic or super pessimistic, you get um, your opportunity set change. So for example, software companies, you know, in 2010 or 11, you could have thrown a dart at a dartboard and any one of those was going to deliver you a 20% return at that point in time. <laughs> now that's different to saying, you know, when should I have invested and the market timing and so forth, but the environment is very target rich. Nowadays, I feel like we have to work a lot harder to find those gems. And so the reason it matters for us is the, the rate at which you need to work to find those two or three ideas to deliver our required returns. And we're fortunate. We only need to find two or three ideas a year. We only own 10 to 15 stocks and we're not out there trying to find 50 companies that need to deliver our returns. So we've got an unfair advantage in that respect. Yeah, yeah. So um, what are some of the key, I think, things that our listeners should be aware of in today's market environment? Obviously, we don't have the you know, research capabilities that you guys do, but just as a retail investor, how should we be thinking about it? Yeah, I think it's one of the trickiest times ever to invest. And when I say ever, I'm 43, so I don't necessarily say ever, ever, but you know, <laughs> certainly in my investing uh, li- lifetime. And the reason for that is back to this interest rate dilemma. You know, This environment encourages people to take their money out of the bank and do other things with it. So you know, I can understand why people say cash is trash. You earn nothing from interest in the bank. So that gives investors a real dilemma. The older you are, the bigger the dilemma it creates because, you know, if you're in a position where you need to start harvesting cash on a two to three year view, then it's very hard to take your money out of cash and do other things because you need to have at least a three to five year view with equities. Um, So it's very much a case of people aren't earning a return in the bank. Therefore, they are encouraged to um, make an investment in equities. You just need to be fearful when others are greedy. So our version of that is you hold more cash than you would normally hold and you don't get caught up in this belief that you can't lose, those two things. The second bit of it is how do you invest as, as a retail investor and what would your strategy be? We don't really get too much in the business of advising people what to do there because, you know, I guess a little selfishly, we believe what we're doing is what we need to focus on. We think it's the right way of doing it. We don't think everyone can do the same thing. Not everyone has access to the same people, resources and dedication to 15 companies that we do. So I often struggle to give retail investors advice. But what I often say is if if you really don't really know what you're doing, you know, you do go wider and you do own an ETF or some sort of um, broader index holding because, you know, you're less likely to trip up and fail on one company being a dud. But if you do genuinely have an interest in business and you do genuinely think you can have a crack at understanding the fundamental value of a business, maybe it's a business that you're very close to, you've got a family interest in it, you grew up around a retail business, something like that, then I do think there's an avenue to uh, pick in individual stocks and take a view on them. I just always caution people to say, we would never buy a stock that we didn't very clearly have a view on the fundamental value of. And that's because our whole business is to buy at a price which is below that fundamental value and understand when it's reached that fundamental value. And if you don't know that equation, then I would argue it's closer to punting. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. So that, that's the sort of context in the market we're in. And, and we thought this was a good, uh, I guess, context to talk about portfolio construction because 
you know, when markets are hot and there's, you know, as you said, it's a difficult time to invest. Um, that's when portfolio construction, I guess, is critical. Um, before we move there, I want to ask one more question about market conditions. Um, you said you're a bit of a value guy or more of a value guy than Tom and Hamish, maybe. Um, and we've been reading a bunch of investor letters for Q1 and there's a lot of talk about, you know, will value finally start to outperform growth again after a long period of growth outperforming? Um, how do you think about growth v value in the coming years? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's not something that we specifically try and forecast because we're not trying to, you know, form a strategy around that question. Just before I go on though, you know, I would say between Tom Hamish and myself, we would agree on 95% of the ultimate view on price value and, and how we proceed. It's normally that my investment setting mentality normally informs how that debate goes. So you always need in the room someone really driving that um, you know, that passion for what the future could hold. And you also need a few people saying, hey, what about this? You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and I think we've got the balance in the team between the two. Yeah. It seems to work well. So on your question of value and growth, look, all we're sensitive to is that in a zero interest rate environment, what do people want to own? Okay, of course you want to own structural growth businesses that are going to grow for 10 or 20 years above GDP and they're going to take market share from the incumbents what a great spot to invest. I mean, that's why software companies are highly valued. That's why we love software companies and, and other structural growth businesses. But that pendulum always has an endpoint. Mm. And whatever's great tends to become too highly prized at some point in time. And so all we're saying is that we're getting towards one end of that spectrum. And or therefore, I would infer that you know at some point in time, that value growth equation would swing around. We still think we can perform well in that environment because we only need to find a small handful out of 4,000 companies of high-quality growth businesses. Mm, mm. So I think, I think naturally, inevitably, that, that equation swings around. Yeah. So before we jump into portfolio construction, we'll take a quick break for our sponsors. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Ben, before we uh, overlay current market conditions with how you're thinking about constructing a portfolio, let's just talk about some of the basics of what you're doing at TDM. Do you have any rules uh, for which you apply to your portfolio construction? Yeah. So, the way we think about portfolio construction is, first and foremost, we are believers in concentration. You know, And again, this is different to a retail investor's perspective, but our fundamental belief is there's not that many great investments out there. And our chances of um, delivering superior returns comes down to 
um, our ability to hold a small number of very good businesses that can deliver great returns. And it's a constant battle to find those great businesses. How many are we talking? What is concentration for you? So our version of that is 10 to 15 businesses. But realistically, it's even more concentrated than that because within that mix, uh, and I can talk about the composition a bit more, but there'll be some quite large positions and then a tail of smaller positions. Mm. And then uh, TDM invests in both private markets and public markets. Do you have any rules around um, that aspect of for, for your portfolios? Yes, yeah, so I'll, gi- I'll give you an overview of how we think about it. So um, just, I guess, going back a step. So we've got about $1.5 billion, which we try and invest globally. We try and find the best 10 to 15 companies. We want to own businesses and help businesses that we're proud of. That's our mission. Uh, we are looking for businesses that um, have structural growth at a high rate, outstanding people and culture, and excellent sustainable competitive advantage. So those three dimensions. So we're finding bottom-up stocks that meet that criteria and that can deliver a 25-ish percent per annum return. Um, then we say, okay, how do we factor those into the portfolio? As I said, 10 to 15 stocks, but our view of how much of those stocks you should own is roughly done like this. A small position for us might be around 3% of the portfolio. A large position would be about 15%. So you could say, well, if you've got your best company, why not make that 35% or 50%? Because you'll get higher returns, right? You know, if your highest returner is 50%. But, you know, however, you know, solid we think our investment record is, there's always margin of error. And you can get things wrong. And in any given year, the company that we think is going to do the best doesn't always do the best, for example. And so... There is a limit, we think, from a risk point of view to how much you should have in one stock. So we have small position, large position, and then we scale everything in between uh, depending on their risk-adjusted returns and, and you know how confident we are in the future for those businesses. And how do you think about like cycling out businesses from that concentration? Like you've put all this work in to find 15 of the best stocks. If you then find a company that is going to be generating 2 or 3% extra in return than what's already in there, do you rebalance, cycle it through? How does that process work? Yeah, uh, we are pretty methodical about how we do that. Um, So what we do is we've always got this equation, if you like, between what we think the fair value of a business is and where the business is trading. So from time to time, and particularly in this environment, you can get that gap close up. And when that gap close up, naturally, we want a smaller position. So the way we see it, we will gradually sell down or sometimes at speed sell down and increase the position depending on that differential between market price and uh, whether uh, what, what our impression of intrinsic value is. Yeah, right. And then in terms of uh, portfolio, something that we are all sort of debating at the moment as well is cash and the weighting yeah. of cash. How do you think about cash weighting? Yeah, I think this is quite different to many investors. So, we have held about 20% of our portfolio in cash across the cycle, you know, across our 16 years in business. And that is an unusual position when you think about it, because, you know, I think most people would agree that generally speaking, you're not in a bear market. Bear markets are occasional. And so therefore, shouldn't you be mostly fully invested, particularly if you've got all these great ideas, you know, that you can invest in and make a 20% return. What we've come to realise over time, and well, from day one actually, is that the option value of having a reasonable cash holding is extremely valuable and is underestimated by most people. Again, you can fall into this trap, hang on, interest rates are zero, that's just dead money. Uh, but you know, we are able to and have done in the past deploy 15 to 20% of our portfolio in a matter of weeks into dirt, dirt cheap companies which we rarely get the opportunity to buy. And so 
that has allowed us, I think, to uh, improve our returns over time. I think the one shift we've made uh, in the last couple of years is to recognise that as we invest in bigger and better quality businesses over time, you get management teams that just continue to produce magic and, um, and, and you know, the intrinsic value keeps growing faster than you think and, and so therefore you may look back and regret having sold something uh, that, you know, doesn't meet that um, differential between value and, and price criteria on the day. Um, so I think we've become a bit more relaxed about holding ultra high quality businesses um, but still maintaining a discipline around um, adjusting position size for valuation. Yeah. Some investors, of course, including Buffett, will say, you just hold the companies that you love and just never let go of them. And so we've got a different twist on that. We think valuation always plays a role. Mm. I mean, that's that's the incredible thing that even, you know, when we started learning about investing, you know, everyone reads the, you know, the security analysis and the yeah. Buffett letters. And there's this real concept of mean reversion that comes through in there where, you know, companies go above their fair value and then they'll come back to their fair value. But what we've seen with companies like Apple and Microsoft is that they just keep compounding away and yep. incredible rates of returns for decades. Yep. Yeah, yeah, ph- phenomenal. And, and they're two great examples. And, and our ideal investment is a type of investment that does that, that continues to surprise you with magic. And we can come on to people and culture in a bit, no doubt, but people and culture is typically the key ingredient make that magic happen. Mm-hmm. So you've said there that uh, some of these rules of portfolio construction don't apply for retail investors, but I think the thing that really comes through is that one, you have pretty clear rules that you all understand and that you all stick to, and two, price plays an incredibly important role in how you sort of apply those rules and how you think about it. And I guess the third one is that you know your companies incredibly well, yeah. and I think those three things definitely apply for any investor. Yeah, and, and I've got um, some friends, for example, who are knowledgeable about property and they ask me, so what shares should buy? And I agree that they should spread their wealth around a little bit, but my, my natural instinct is to say, you're all over this property game. You know it back to front. I'd be super concentrated in what you're doing and I'd keep hammering that away. You've got an unfair advantage. And I, I so flip that around, I have the same view of stocks. I, I guess how it is picked up at the 20% cash weighting through the cycle, That, as you said, that's unusual. Um for a retail investor, um, you know, having cash on the sideline is important, but you know, you often get an itchy finger, and you're seeing all these companies run, and you're seeing crypto run, and you're seeing buy now pay later run. Um, and at the same time, you know, Bryce, I think for four years when we started the show, was predicting a, bo- a bear market and was holding cash, and it never really came. Well, it came in 2020 eventually. So I think um, that decision about when should you have cash? How much cash you should hold as a retail investor is difficult. Um, obviously, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but how would you think about uh, the cash weighting as a retail investor? Yeah, I think everyone's got to have their own version of playing offence and defence. And that's what we talked about in our blog post. You know, What is your version of aggressive and conservative? And match that to the environment that you're in. So, for example, our version of that being quite um, plain defensive, a little defensive right now, is in our case, 15 to 20% cash. We've been up as high as 50% cash before and aggressively moved our cash weighting to zero when the opportunity sets massive. And so I think if I'm a retail investor, I think, well, what's my version of that? That does come down your risk appetite and other things, but I would find it very hard to understand a retail investor at this point in the cycle not having you know, 10 to 20% cash somewhere ready to deploy when things are less rosy. Mm. And, and I particularly say that because not just equities that 
are enjoying significant inflation, you know, there's a, you know, some could argue this is the bubble of everything that's been going on and, and there'll be opportunities in the future. Mm, mm. It is actually everything, like not just traditional assets, but like sneakers and everything. Cows too, as it turns Cow- out. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get on uh, the livestock market. True, more. true. <laughs> so I think... Um, there's sort of the rules of portfolio construction um, that you guys have. We'd love to now overlay current market conditions and understand how you're thinking about um, portfolio construction at the moment. Um, so yeah, I guess you know how are those rules holding up? Are you um, are you still finding opportunities? Do you have to reduce that ten to fifteen number because everything's quite hot? Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how's how are those rules holding up at the moment? So we're lucky. I think we've still got an unfair advantage, which I think is a point I want to keep making. You know, as we've pointed out at the start, we can invest in public and private businesses anywhere in the world. We've probably got an opportunity set of four thousand plus companies, and so and we're only trying to find two or three a year. And so within that, you know, we might find one private company, two public companies, or the other way around. And within that, you know, we might find that we have one sort of um, tens of billions market cap uh, public company and one that's sort of a billion, you know, in the growth phase. So we've got all those opportunities. Um, and I think that strategy is working really well right now because we've got certain companies in the portfolio that are just um, making massive gains in their intrinsic value. You know, I, I just think about a classic Aussie success story, Guzman Gomez. It's it's just shooting the lights out and is going to be, if it's not already, a great Aussie success story and hopefully one day a global success story. Um so that's ticking away in the background, growing intrinsic value really fast. It gives us the luxury on the public side to be really choosy about when we buy new companies. So we are able to generate those returns across the cycle by having that mix of public and private investments and not being forced to, you know, I guess if you look at one strategy, if we're all private equity, we need to do four deals a year in private companies. Or if we're public only, we need to hold 100% of our funds in public companies, we're able to dip in and out where the best companies and teams of people reside. Mm. There's no doubt that markets can remain pretty irrational for quite extended periods of time. And you've, you've recognised that um, we're at a reasonably frothy, overvalued point in the market. But if that were just to continue for year on year and you know what we're seeing just pushes further... How do you adjust or do you adjust any of your rules? And particularly for the retail investor, if you are sitting in cash, it's pretty hard to stay there and watch the market continue. So how do you kind of think through that? Yeah, I, th- I think that's an interesting dilemma. I mean, because of um, this other dimension to our business and having companies that are not yet in the public domain and that are growing in the background, we do have the luxury to, to hold cash and bide our time. I think it's a realistic scenario that, in, in a market environment like this, valuations still keep going up. It just comes down to probability and timing of yeah. when a potential correction happens. Um, so I think I think we're we're well positioned for that. Obviously, if you look back in three years' time and the bull market's extended, we would have been better off having that 15 20% cash in the market. And that's something we won't know till the time. But yeah. what we're saying is we can generate our returns with that cash holding. Do you... So- uh, there was an investor we spoke to, I can't remember when, but there was sort of like rules. Um, he had rules around, you know, if a stock dropped, you know, 10%, he would deploy 10% of his cash into the market. And he had like a rules-based approach for a market downturn. Um, do you guys have a similar approach? And and maybe like if we talk about a specific example, Spotify, 
a company that you guys have invested in for a while um, has come off a little bit. Do you like with that? Do you have a rules based approach where it's like, all right, we're going to put some more in and some more in if it keeps dropping, or is it? Yeah, so Spotify yeah. is a great example. I mean, great companies, as as we've discussed, tend to grow their intrinsic value over time. Less great companies are either flat in terms of what their fundamental intrinsic value is or down. So Spotify is a great example of a company that continues to grow its competitive advantage and its intrinsic value. So the way that translates into our decision making is we're constantly researching the business, understanding the industry better and, you know, comparing it to other opportunities, I guess, but really coming up with what our view of fundamental value is. And as that ratchets up over time, we factor that into our holding of the business and, and relate that back to the share price. So it may be that the share price goes up, but the intrinsic value keeps going up faster. And that's an ideal scenario for us. So if you think about it, it's hard to draw a graph on audio, but if you think <laughs> of a, a, a graph with um, you know valuation on the vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis, um, you think of intrinsic value being a straight line up and to the right and you know share price, a squiggly line below that. Our ideal company looks like that because you can continue to hold it for many years to come even though the share price is going up. Mm. 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 So obviously as the share price goes down and Spotify is no different, if the share price is falling, we are in the market buying shares to recognise the growing difference between intrinsic value and where the share price sits. On that point, how did you guys approach the world's fastest uh, crash in March 2020? Yeah, interesting. Um, so we were investing uh, heavily in that scenario. Prior to that, we were worried about valuations, so had harvested a fair bit of cash and valuations were high. They happen to be higher now. Um, <laughs> but going into that, we, we were deploying money fast. I think what we got wrong in inverted commas is we were we were probably too cautious and then started to reduce some of those positions as we came out the other side because we were really worried about where the world was at. And in fact, looking back, it's hard to fathom how well asset prices performed when the world was in a massive mm. malaise. And I still can't really fathom that, to be honest. My only rationale is that interest rates are so low and back to this thing that all assets go up in that scenario. But um, yeah, so, so we would have, you know, we made fantastic returns the last 12 months, but they would have been better, even better if we'd um, hold on to some of those positions a bit longer because obviously the market's been much stronger than what anyone had thought. A lot of retail investors will just buy the dip because they're told buy the dip, even though, and and take no consideration into price. You you're saying you're deploying cash in March 20 really quickly. Mm. Um, was it all driven though by the underlying sh- stock price, yeah. or were you just like, now's an opportunity, let's get it in there? Yeah. So we have uh, a watch list. Um, you know, f- 50 plus companies. Um, some of those we know better than others, but the ones we know well, we will have a very specific buy price attached yeah. to it. And we will adjust that buy price as new facts come to light. Uh, and that buy price will be independent of what's going on in the market around us. Um, now, of course, it becomes tempting to change some of your assumptions, you know, when you see that all the comps to a company are trading at a certain level, but we really do try and be disciplined about looking through the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a methodical approach when it comes to what, what the buy price should be. I find that 2020 period interesting because, you know, on one hand, you're looking at your assumptions about the intrinsic value of a company and the future prospects of a company and you're saying, well, this is a good price that the market's giving us. But on the other hand, there's so much uncertainty for some of the businesses that you own about what the future actually does hold. You know, a company like Spotify 
all online, not as affected by COVID. But, you know, another company that you own, Pacific Smiles, is all physical locations. Um, and, you know, if the economy shut down, the future becomes incredibly uncertain. So how do you build models and make assumptions about some of those companies uh, at a time like um, the start of COVID? The key is to have a go at looking through that event, whatever it is, and try and come up with some view. So we're always trying to look five years out. It's not to say that COVID doesn't have some form of disruption on that five-year view, but we look five years out. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm involved with Pacific Smiles and on the board there. If you just take that as a case study of how that played out in market prices, in the middle of COVID, that stock was trading at 80 cents. Why? Because I guess people inferred dental um, services can't be delivered. You know, it's going to be a difficult environment. You know, maybe um, you're going to make some losses for a bit, whatever the case might be. Um, if you take a, a, a forward look five years from that point in time, you say, okay, our dental service is still going to be delivered in the way that they were pre-COVID. Who's going to be delivering them? Who are the market winners? And therefore, what's the earnings power of the business at that point in time? If you ran that equation, the valuation wouldn't change mm. for the business. So you had a situation where the stock price was 80 cents, now trading you know, 275-ish. And for those willing to see red on the screen and to deal with uncertainty in the short term, Provided you know what that endpoint is or have a view on that endpoint, mm. that's the way you make returns. Yeah. And, and I guess the other thing at the time was do they have like the balance sheet to get through that period as well? Absolutely. And we're massive believers at TDM in balance sheet flexibility. Basically, across our portfolio, we're in net cash positions for all our businesses. And, you know, and I've heard a lot of companies say, well, why don't we just borrow more money? You know, it's so cheap. What happens, you know, if you can't pay that interest bill for a month, a covenant's breached, you have to do an emergency capital raise. It's all about that optionality piece and flexibility. And you look at the companies that have done really well through COVID, it's ones that have been able to stick to their strategy or enhance it when their competitors are floundering and really double down and invest. And, and those are the ones with stronger balance sheets. Mm, mm. So uh, many of the Equitymates community take a dollar cost average approach and just to kind of close out the conversation around market conditions, uh, how do you think about dollar cost averaging at a time like this? So I don't mind the idea of spreading a buy decision over a period of time. I mean, we do essentially do that as well. I also think the less you know about a particular company or you know, a particular situation, you know, putting all your money into one stock on a particular day, if you don't know much about it, is probably a bad strategy. Yeah. So, intuitively, I don't mind it uh, for retail investors. Yeah, nice. So, Ben, we want to thank you um, for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation, definitely um, given us and the Equitymates community a lot to think about. Aside from going out and reading the TDM blog post on current market conditions, do you have any sort of final thoughts or final words for the retail investing community? Sure. And I've really enjoyed this. I know I've given a bit of advice around, basically, if you don't really know everything about the companies you're investing in, take a wide strategy and be quite passive. And if you know a lot about the companies you're investing in, be concentrated and hold on to the things you know well. The other thing I'd mention, uh, strategies like TDM strategies are hard to get involved in, hard to access. But one method of getting something similar is to invest in hearts and minds investments. So the, the code there is HM1. Uh, that is a, an investment company which is built to uh, help community and specifically help medical research. So there's a bunch of managers involved in picking the stocks for that company and we're one of them. The managers don't make fees, but that fee is effectively paid towards 
um, those charitable endeavours in health research, health and medical research. Mm. So yeah, that would be one way of doing it. We've had a bit of a chat about HM1 on the show and interviewed some of the managers and it's rare that you know, you guys at TDM, Hamish Douglas and, you know, some of the other best investors in Australia come together and it's for a good cause. So, yeah, we're big fans of what they're doing over there. Fantastic. Thanks. So, Ben, uh, we're almost out of time. We do have a final three questions we end every interview with. But before we do, if the Equitymates community want to find out more about yourself or TDM, uh, where should they be going? Well, as everyone will joke amongst my colleagues at, at TDM, they'll say I hide in the shadows. So it's very hard to find me, uh, except I respond on the occasional uh, LinkedIn piece. But um, in terms of discovering more about TDM, uh, our website's a great resource for that. There's, I believe, heaps of good content there. If you look at when we started out, you know, there's no content that TDM produced. And now um, we are really trying to change the way the investment community works for the better. And we really think it's our duty and service to help the finance community do better than what they've done in the past. And we want to be driving that. Mm. Well, I can say uh, between yourself, Hamish, Tom and Ed, um, you've definitely helped our community. So um, we appreciate it. And yeah, people should go and check out the the TDM website. Um, Now we'll get into the final three questions. Uh, First one, uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? Yeah, and this reflects my own personal style as well. You know, I think um, One Up on on Wall Street by Peter Lynch is a classic and it really plays to this view I have that if you can understand a business as a layperson, then that's a great start. If you're going to pick individual stocks, that's almost a must-have. So it's just an intuitive, common-sense book, which I think every budding investor should read and would be a really, really useful resource. Mm. Um, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? This is a super hard question yeah. because best company, you know, I, I could, I could, we've never owned Apple, but I could say, you know, Apple's one of the world's best companies because of what they've achieved and they've um, showed people that, you know, who thought they were a hardware business and, you know, wouldn't grow as fast as they had that actually there are must-have software hardware combination that's going to be here forever and, and is always going to continue to, you know, outstrip expectations. When I look at, from our point of view, what is perfect it's a company like Mineral Resources, which we own here in Australia. And the reason I've picked Mineral Resources for this answer is, um, well, firstly, what is Mineral Resources? It's a mining services infrastructure company, which listed, you know, 16 years ago, basically when we started, we've owned it since that time, about $100 million market cap at that point in time, and now it's $8.5 billion. Now, you think of a, mining, a company in the mining services industry and you think, you know, perhaps not as innovative, you know, slower growth, susceptible to the vicissitudes of the cycle and so forth. Mineral resource is one of the most innovative forward thinking um, businesses that we've ever seen. And that has allowed them to continuously um, exceed expectations and do things that others weren't able to do. So back to my earlier point um, about maintaining that gap between intrinsic value and share price and being able to own something for a long period of time, their intrinsic value has continued to grow very, very fast and the share price has also grown and that's what's allowed us to be long-term partners uh, with them and, and investors in the company. Mm. Yeah, it's a crazy company. It is the definition of bottom left to top right in terms of share price growth. Um, so, final question. Um if you think back to your younger self, you know, when you're buying uh, that first flock of sheep, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? 
I think uh, a few things. So don't don't or don't become susceptible to overconfidence. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know like know your limitations and invest in your circle of competence. Uh, that's number one. Number two, you know, be around the best people that you can be around and people who are complementary to your skill set. I think one of the key ways that TDMs become successful is the combination of people. One plus one equals five or ten or wh- whatever it is. And I've learnt that on boards. I've learnt that in the investment sphere and I've learnt that, I guess, in social communities. And that just is something that I keep coming back to. Final thing relates to that, I guess, people and culture is always the thing that delivers that ultimate positive surprise in the long term. And even now, I continue to underappreciate how powerful that is. And, you know, we obviously have spreadsheets and we have research and we have all sorts of fundamental discovery tools, but ultimately that team of people who continues to surprise and innovate and develop is what's ultimately going to be a sustainable competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Well, Ben, it has been, as always, an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you and everyone from TDM. You always provide such uh, great value for our audience um, and, you know, they certainly do appreciate what you guys are doing. So uh, I would reiterate that if you are listening and want to know more, definitely head to the TDM website. As Ben said, plenty of great resources there and you get a really good insight into how you guys are thinking. So very much appreciate your time and we hope to uh, connect again at some point. Thanks very much. And it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of this um, from TDM's perspective. We love what you guys do and we're really, really happy to support it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.